What's going on, guys? Michael here, Energy 360 Network by Intercom. Excited to be bringing you this interview with Alex Epstein. Before I do that, I need to do some cleric work. First, if you're not subscribed to the 360 Digital Clothes on iTunes, Spotify, or Intercom's YouTube channel, please pause this show and do that right now. It is the best way to stay updated on all of your energy market finance stuff. We cover live on YouTube every single day. We do a five-minute show covering the energy markets, what happened with the digital ticker, and then we move into our one big thing. We also have shows Mondays and Fridays which talk about really cover the week ahead and week look back from an energy markets perspective. You can, again, find that iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, subscribe, resubscribe, do whatever makes the algorithms go nuts. We really appreciate all your support. You can also check out the Energy 360 Network by Intercom the world's greatest website, www.oilandgas360.com, which is the best place for all of your energy thought leadership interviews. You can also find all of those interviews in iTunes, Spotify, and, U- and Intercom's YouTube. And this interview we just did, with Alex Epstein was nonetheless great. He's probably the fourth author we had, which is really cool. He wrote the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, A Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. And really what he does is he takes an approach of energy and specifically fossil fuels have been the driving force behind human innovations for hundreds of years. He's a former Duke philosophy major who sort of had a, not an awakening, but, 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 but a realization that low cost, affordable, scalable energy, specifically fossil fuels, has driven millions and hundreds of millions of people out of power. We had a fascinating, wide-ranging discussion on the current ESG climate, maybe what happens with all of this stuff going forward in um, post-coronavirus. And obviously, we touch a lot on his book, A Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. You could buy that book at Amazon. Obviously, it's A Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Stu now to kick this off. Hey guys, um, boy, we are so thrilled to be talking with Alex Epstein today. Uh, my name's Stu Turley, and I've got Michael uh, Tanner up here. So we're going to sit down and talk about a few things that Alex has going on. Thank you for taking the time today to visit with us, Alex. We sure are thrilled. Hey, good to be here. So uh, you've written a book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, but you're also uh, really big uh, with your uh, fo- the Center for Industrial Processes. Could you give us a little bit of feedback of what you're doing right now or what the center is all about? Uh, sure. So it's Center for Industrial uh, Progress. We don't actually produce any any physical right. things. So it's not. I, I'm from Texas. So, you know, <laughs> hey. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Uh, sure. So the, uh, that's an organization that I founded in 2011. And the idea was to offer a positive pro-human alternative to the green movement. So the way we're traditionally taught to think about environmental issues is what I call the green approach, which is that we, we need to save the planet from human beings. And so in the green approach, the, vi- the villain is human impact. It's really an anti-human impact movement. And, and my yeah. view is that human impact is a force for good. If you care about human life, human beings impacting our environment intelligently is actually how we survive and flourish. You just think about the conditions that still billions of people live in today and that everyone lived in throughout history. Nature does not give us an environment that allows human beings to flourish, to live to our our highest potential. Just reading some stories uh, this morning about just how big a deal it is even to, you know, you just think about people spending hours a day just getting firewood. 
and that's oh, still a reality. And why do you need firewood? Well, you need firewood because nature doesn't give you optimal temperatures, despite what the climate catastrophists say. So you need to figure out how to do something to control your own personal climate. And for most people throughout history, that means engaging in manual labor to figure out how to warm themselves up. And you know what we do with energy is we allow ourselves to do machine labor. We can use machines to improve our lives, which allow us to do any given productive activity in far less time than we could via uh, manual labor. So the Center for Industrial Progress is all about believing not that we should save the planet from human beings, but improve the planet for human beings. And for the reasons I indicated, energy is fundamental because energy is the industry that powers every other industry. And so from the, my background, I mean, I didn't have any background in, in energy. We can talk about that. But I, I kind of got interested in energy 13 years ago. And that's really been the center's focus throughout because that's the fundamental industry. And there's so much to talk about uh, just with that. So just to give you a little bit more. So historically, what we've done, it's been a for-profit uh, business. So it's, it's not a nonprofit that's, you know, a 501c3 and that kind of thing. And the primary ways we uh, make money and support our ideas are one is, you know, writing books giving speeches. And then yep. the majority of our business has historically been, or at least for the past couple of years, has been helping energy companies improve their messaging. So companies mm. that see the way I explain things and see the success that I have, if they're interested in that approach for themselves, I can help them do that with things like their stakeholder, different kinds of stakeholder relations, like investor relations, community relations, different kinds of legal things, uh, et cetera. But all of this work, in my view, is for this idea of improving the planet for human beings. That's that's the centerpiece. That, that's the that's the animating force behind all the work. You know, Alex, what you, what you just described is outstanding because we get to see the finance section of uh, lots of oil and gas companies, and the oil and gas companies that don't have ESG or social uh, re corporate responsibility are not going to be around. And I love the difference that you do say and that it is about getting the uh, help and the story out there because the story is now consumers are going to see if you don't have a good ESG story or you're not, you know, green or having that message, uh, they're not going to use your products. And so uh, having you help uh, oil companies is uh, pretty good. There's a demand for that. There's a market. Let me just say something quickly about ESG because I think ESG is very much a mixed uh, mixed bag and it's been a focus of my consulting work in the, in the past couple of years. But I mentioned there are these two approaches to our environment. And so you can think of it as the save the planet from human beings approach or the anti-human impact approach and then the improve the planet for human beings approach. So I'd call that the pro-human flourishing approach. You're looking at, we don't want to keep the earth the same we want it to be as good a place for human beings to live as possible. And part of that is, yeah, of course, we care about how ecosystems interrelate and we want to minimize things like polluting the air and polluting the water, but it's all in service of improving human life. And if, I think if you look at the ESG movement, a lot of it is based on the anti-human impact premise. And if, for example, you see with a lot of these net zero commitments, people are saying, oh, we should be net zero by 2050. And they really take that as the highest goal. Like no matter what, we're going to reduce emissions to zero. But what if reducing emissions to zero caused billions of people to die prematurely? Would that be an okay choice? And my view is no, that would not be an okay choice. And in fact, I do believe that is 
that is the choice. But you have to decide if you're very clear when you're talking about, you know, environments, uh, particularly environment and the ESG part of it. Like, do you have a pro-human view of environment or do you have an anti-human or anti-human impact view of environment? I think uh, the, the modern environmental movement is very anti-human impact and they've really been guiding the ESG discussion. So when I've advised companies and worked with companies, my focus has been tell, the, tell them, tell people how you're making the world a better place to live, but it's a better place to live for humans. Don't accept this goal that we should be changing things as little as possible, including we should have zero emissions. I don't think zero emissions is the goal. I think maximum human flourishing, maximum human well-being is the goal. Alex, you really bring that for, oh, sorry, Michael, I didn't mean to cut you off, but um, you really bring that home in your book and saying that the power use should be used in a positive way for humankind. And I like that, Michael, I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, no problem. I think there's a lot of interesting uh, things you mentioned there. And I think, you know, does it frustrate you when you see, because I think one of the big things that we see on the investor side, specifically in energy is, is big institutions like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, they all come out and say, we're not investing in any projects that don't right. have ESG specifically in their, you know, within their bylines. Is that something mm -hmm. that, that you see as frustrating? Or how do you work around that when you're talking with these companies who hopefully go raise money from corporations like this? Well, I mean, it's in, one interesting facet of ESG is nobody has much of a clue of what it actually means. I think anyone who really digs into it just sees, I mean, it's like any kind of, I mean, it's kind of like you're seeing with the different wealth transfer programs going on now in terms of you know, the government just scurrying and rewriting the rules all, all, all the time. And not to condemn all of that, but you just see with like, what does it even mean? Like who is deciding what qualifies as responsible? Uh, and you know, it's really the broad idea here is sustainability. Like who decides what's actually sustainable? And there's so little thought um, put into it. And one aspect is that if you just look at, there's this whole practice of only looking at the negatives of fossil fuels and only looking at the positives of solar and wind. So for example, who's pressuring the solar and wind companies to talk about things like toxic mining operations, you know, destruction of different kinds of habitats, the, even the greenhouse gases they have from certain kinds of operations depend, you know, complete dependence on reliable sources of power. Like, there's a, such a, an unbalanced thing. And even also, Who's talking about why maybe nuclear should be included more in this discussion? Because I think that's actually the safest and cleanest source of energy. And yet you see, so the whole ESG movement has just totally adopted the modern anti-impact environmental movement, like its dogmas as, oh, this is what it means to be concerned about the future. So your number one focus is reducing emissions to zero. And you have this bizarre obsession just with sunlight and wind, but not with nuclear and hydro. And that's, that's just been taken on so parasitically. And you see that with, I mean, run down the list, BlackRock, Larry Fink, Goldman Sachs. It's just, it's such an intellectually parasitical movement where they've just said, yeah, all these environmental activists, just whatever they say is sustainable, that's what we're going to believe is sustainable. Even though, again, it makes no sense. It makes no sense to only look at the negatives of certain technologies, only the positives of others. It makes no sense to be anti-nuclear. makes no sense to insist on solar and wind as the be-all uh, and end-all. So what I think companies need to do is, that if, particularly if you're an oil and gas company or a coal company, like you need to realize that this whole discussion is rigged against you. 
And that's not a fun position to be in where the whole thing is rigged against you, but it's, it is rigged. And so you have, you can't just comply. Like if a discussion is being framed in a way that's wrong and that implies your destruction and really sustainability means non-hydrocarbon. Like that's really what all of ESG amounts to, right? So it just means how are you becoming more sustainable? How are you going to stop producing hydrocarbon? So if you realize that you need to figure out a way to reframe it. You might wish that you didn't have to do that because it's a pain and it's not your focus, but what are you going to do? You can, you can throw them a bone which is what people try to do and say, like, we reduce these methane emissions. But you know that's a very limited thing. You can't reduce methane emissions forever. And even if there were no methane emissions, they'd still be opposed uh, to you. So I think people have to say, and what I advise people to say is, look, we believe in, I don't like the term sustainability, but we believe in long-term value creation. And here's why what we do is long-term value creation. And then really be able to enumerate Here are the ways in which this contributes to clean water, the alleviation of poverty. Even as I point out in my book, fewer climate-related deaths. We're actually safer from climate climate than ever. But unfortunately or not, however you view it, you cannot just default to the ESG framework if you're a long-term player. If if you just want to make some quick cash now, well, except there's now demand destruction and you know, oversupply. So if you're a quick, if you're a short-term person, you shouldn't be in this market anyway. It's not, nobody's going into oil and gas right now for short-term profit. So anyone who's in it for the long game, you have to frame the whole thing in terms of long-term value creation and really understand and explain to the different stakeholders why you're good. And you're not going to win over everybody, but you can win over a lot of people. But if if you just accept the framing of it, it's just going to go in the direction it's, it's been going in. You know, I think it's a really interesting way to, 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 to put it, Alex, because I think, you know, especially with the ESGs, it's so huge now, but I think you put it perfectly. If you're in this for the long term, you know, it, the, the data clearly shows over the long term that, that fossil fuels help. You know, I, I want to get into your book, but really my, my question is, you know, you're, you're a philosophy major from Duke. How does somebody with that background kind of find himself in the energy suit? It's not quite what I, you know, I think most people would expect. So I, I'd be interested in how you even got into this space. And then I think we can, you know, dive into your book would be great. Sure. So, yeah, I certainly had no expectation of being involved in energy, uh, let alone fossil fuels. And just to go back uh, a little bit farther, I was kind of a a math science person in high school. I went to one of the top math science, uh, computer science schools in the country in high school. And just looking back on that, none of us would have ever thought we're going to do something for fossil fuels. So I'm I'm 39 now. So this was you know in the in the late 90s when I was in in high school, mid to late 90s I should say. And the point, the reason I bring that up is because like if if you were somebody with a lot of options, like you were good, you had technical skills, math, science skills. The idea was, well, you have a lot of options. So why would you work in the dirty fossil fuel mm-hmm. industry? Like it makes no sense. You're supposed to use your abilities and your opportunities for good. And the, what we were taught as good was something like, you know, the solar powered car. That's, I remember growing up with that. So I grew up in a, in a math science environment uh, on the East coast in a place called Chevy Chase, Maryland, which is very uh, liberal. 
And I never heard anything positive about fossil fuels going up and growing up. And then I went to Duke, and I certainly never heard anything positive about fossil uh, fuels there. And I fell in love starting in high school, but really in college with philosophy as a subject, uh, which most people think that's ridiculous because it's impractical. But I actually thought of it as the most practical because philosophy really is about thinking methods. And I think the thinking methods ultimately determine our conclusions about the world and then the actions that we take. So I became very interested in how do you think logically about really difficult kinds of issues in, in human action. And then you know, years later when I was 27, I, I was just randomly researching John D. Rockefeller and I had to learn the history of oil. And there are two facts about it that really changed my, my life. Um, one is that oil, contrary to what I had to believe, what I was led to believe was not, it wasn't, there weren't like two alternatives. I, I was led to believe, oh, it's, it was just whale oil. And then we ran out and then we were lucky to find regular oil. And what I realized, what I learned is no, there was actually a dynamic competitive marketplace of many different forms of illumination back in the 1800s. Mm. But the reason oil won out was because it was the only low cost scalable way of producing reliable energy in particular for illumination. That really struck me as it's not enough just to have some technology for producing energy. You need a low cost scalable process. And then that made me start to think, well, maybe that's true today. Maybe the reason we're using oil is not because it's conspiracy or something like that, but maybe because that's still the lowest cost, most scalable process, particularly for different kinds of portable uh, applications. And the other thing I realized studying the history was when I study the history, you see what happens when people go from no energy to having energy. And that's not something we get to, I got to experience as a kid. I grew up in a suburb in, you know, suburban Maryland. I didn't, that, that was a, oh, I mean, by historical standards, that's a very wealthy place, even if it's middle class. But by looking back in history, I saw, I could see the very moment when people in the American countryside went from darkness at night to being able to afford to light their homes at night. And then I did more research and I saw the difference between going from manual labor to machine labor. And I, that made me realize, wow, energy is the industry that powers every other industry. If we make good decisions about energy, that means more people have the miracle of machine power. If we make bad ones, that means fewer people do. And so I got, got very interested in, I was very passionate about the value of energy, along with this realization that to be available to as many people as possible, needs to be low cost and, and scalable. And once I knew that, I started to think, wow, there's probably a lot of good things about fossil fuels and, and also nuclear that I haven't been taught. And the more I looked at that, the more I saw there's a huge bias against fossil fuels. And I became very interested in how to understand fossil fuels versus the alternatives, but in a much more even-handed way where I'm looking at the benefits and the side effects of every form of producing energy uh, versus just looking at the positives of solar and the negatives of of fossil fuels. You know, you're the, you're human you're humanizing of this is phenomenal, Alex. And I just really appreciate the way that you have thought through this process. There are other folks out there that have just come out with a uh, movie uh, that was uh, bashing social. Um, solar and wind planet, planet of, of humans. humans yeah we yeah. We, we did a whole was, internal special on that it was it was cool mm. what, what were your thoughts and, on that uh, well, i have i have two hours of youtube videos on it if anyone wants oh, to, oh to look well, it good, up. good plug but, for your youtube channel but the thing is your philosophy is different than theirs theirs was there's too many people in the world 
And oh, by the way, the way to do this is social, uh, having uh, social distance and everything out, not social distance, but social uh, dissidence and everything else. And I just found it so disgusting that it was a whole anti-human. But by the way, here's a conspiracy on it. And your side of it is very refreshing. It's about how do we help humanity and, and those kind of things. Uh, in your book, you also talk about fusion versus fission. Um, believe it or not, I'm, in 1977, I wrote a, a paper on uh, fission uh, reaction and, um, and fusion, what the differences were. And uh, I th do you think we're near fusion, getting closer to that? I mean, I just don't. I mean, I, I think most people who make predictions about this stuff don't know what they're talking about. And I, I don't think I would know what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm very concerned with the policy framework. So I'm very interested in what I call decriminalizing nuclear energy because right. the, the way it's, it's really demonized as this unique safety threat, which I don't think is at all true. And there's a lot of misconceptions about nuclear safety. And so what I, I want is for people to have the equivalent of you can start you know, you can build a nuclear reactor in your garage. I, I want it to be where there are entrepreneurs who can do that kind of thing. And I think once you have that framework, then people will, you know, you'll discover is it, because it's very possible that just the best thing for a while will be some advanced form of fission. I mean, as appealing as fusion is, fission is, is amazing. It just in terms of what we call the energy density uh, that you're dealing with in terms of just, you know, how much energy per unit of mass, how much energy per unit of volume. It's just, Amazing. So I met a guy recently, I won't, I won't say the name, but someone who was bankrolling a fusion company and he claimed that they were really close. And then he said I could visit and then uh, the pandemic hit. So I'm still, I'd have no independent uh, confirmation, but I, like, it's cool to think about, but there's a question of why are we, if people's view is, I think sometimes people have the view, okay, well, the green movement won't accept fossil fuels and they won't accept fission but maybe they'll accept fusion. And in my book, I tell the story of how in 1989, there were these over, completely overblown reports about how fusion would be viable. And the response to the green movement was, yeah, cheap, clean, totally safe energy uh, without limit, that would be the worst thing ever because human beings, and you think about it, it makes sense on their premise, we'd impact the planet so much. Right? If, if you right. could make energy, imagine machine power was free Imagine what, you know, totally clean, the developing world would develop immediately, which I oh, think yeah. is great. I think is great. But would we be doing more travel or less travel? We'd be doing more travel. Would we build more buildings or fewer buildings? We'd build more buildings. You know, would we uh, more industrialization of agriculture? And, and what I think this example of fusion, what this thought experiment of what if energy were free and totally clean and safe? The fact that the modern environmental movement, I think most people, the leaders would be against it, shows they're not, they're just against human impact on the planet as such. It's not that right. they're against the side effects of it for us, they're against the effect of it. They're against us using energy to transform the earth to achieve our goals. Not that, oh, it has a byproduct of sulfur dioxide, has a byproduct of CO2, and that causes. Uh, problems. It's no, you shouldn't be using energy to transform the world. You should just, we should reduce our numbers, reduce our impact. We should be more like the other animals who just live a, a repetitive, low impact lifestyle. 
So uh, I just love your insights on on these things. It's a refreshing uh, outlook on that. And so as you take a look at um, climate change uh, and climate deaths, you really mm-hmm. point that out well in your book that it is not uh, uh, fossil fuels are not causing extra deaths. Uh, I found that yeah. just something that is an excellent talking point that the green movement is always bringing up fossil fuels kill more people I, well no so they it's interesting because they they don't exactly say that they kill more people but it, it so there's always this question uh, and this has been implicit in what i've discussed but i haven't made it explicit yet of just there's a question of when you're talking about good and bad what standard are you using how are you measuring good and bad and so i'm measuring good and bad by what I call human flourishing. So how much does this increase or decrease our ability to live to our our full potential as human beings? But the dominant way of looking at good and bad is this idea of being green, which means minimal human impact. So when you look at climate, you're looking at rising CO2 levels. I look at it from the perspective of are rising CO2 levels, including the energy that comes with them, are those good for human beings or are they bad? For human beings. Again, you have to include the energy that comes with them. But the way they're usually looked at is just if they change climate, then they're bad. And so you notice that nobody talks about all the benefits that come with them. It's just, oh, if we're having any impact on climate, then we should stop. But again, what if that helps billions of people raise themselves out of poverty? It, would you be willing to tolerate a degree or two increase in temperature? I, those the billions of people in poverty certainly uh, certainly would. We've had one degree Celsius, two degrees Fahrenheit increase in temperature in the last 170 years, and we're much more prosperous now. I'd say that was an incredible trade uh, insofar as, as there's a trade. And one, one point I make is that there are not only, you can think of other oh, benefits in terms of agriculture and industry and housing and all the different things that machine power helps us with, but even in the realm of climate, if you look at how safe are we from climate now, we're much safer than we were 100 years ago. We're really 50 times safer. So that means you're 150th as likely to die from a storm or a flood or drought, or at least those combined. And how does that happen, given that everyone's saying climate's becoming so much worse? Well, it's because the climate was already dangerous. And then we use machine power to produce all these protections against climate. So we produce storm warning systems and sturdy homes and climate control and mm. drought relief and you know, good and affordable clothing for people and the ability to mobilize and all, all these different things we can produce with machine power. They've actually taken the naturally dangerous climate and they've made it unnaturally safe. But because the green movement is looking at the situation just from the perspective of all change is bad, they can't see that the climate is safer than it's ever been and that fossil fuels uh, are part of it. And it would be really like looking at the world, like if you only looked at the negative side effects of antibiotics, you would have such a warped view of the world because you'd view it as, oh, antibiotics are terrible. Why have we ever used them? And you wouldn't see, oh, wait, billions of people probably have a longer life because of antibiotics. Now, antibiotics have definite problems with them, but the benefits so far have dramatically outweighed those. But if you imagine, for, if you imagine again, if you look at it only the side effects, you would have such a warped view. And that's how I view right. fossil fuels. People, they don't realize, oh, wait, this has added decades to my life. This has given me amazing opportunities to do whatever I want in life. 
but we're only taught to focus on the side effects and we're taught to exaggerate them. So it's like we think that food is poison and poison is food. Yep. You brought up in uh, several times, I believe, that uh, I think the average age at one point in your book was like 57. Uh, adding power or adding energy to it uh, brings the average lifespan up to 70. Uh, that's pretty strong. I mean, that you've got that one thing that you can attribute saying uh, this is adding life to poverty folks that are stricken with poverty. Well, it's, it's hard to say like somebody could object to that because they could say, well, like there's a lot of different things, right? There's, I mean, there's advances in medicine, there's advances in science and it's true. You can't take anything out of isolation, but there's a really important point about energy and that I don't think is under understood well, which is the relationship between energy and innovation. So if you think of what energy does is it allows you to use machine power. So it allows you to produce more value in less time. One of the key benefits of that is that frees up time to think about ways to produce even more value. So you think about innovations in science. How is it now that we can have millions of people involved in scientific and technological innovation, really tens of millions, maybe even hundreds of millions around the world, but at least tens of millions we didn't have that percentage of the population focused on innovation in the past. Why? Because we're all focused on growing food, getting mm -hmm. lumber to burn, acquiring pretty dirty water, building some sort of terrible latrine, you know, with a decent distance from our house. So it doesn't smell so bad. Like a natural life without machine power is a really bad life by our standards. And so when you look at the innovation, you can't say, Oh, well, fossil fuels didn't directly produce that medical cure. So it has nothing to do with it. Now you can point out, well, the materials involved in the cure are probably made of fossil fuels, but I, I'd focus on the time. The human time freed up by fossil fuel power has, is responsible for so many of the innovations that we have. And if we want to continue living in a world where we have innovation and where we have just the ability of people to devote their lives to things like medicine, we need low cost machine power and the places that don't have it those are the places where people mm -hmm. are do not have abundant medical care and where they're spent they're spending all of their time on just the crudest necessities of life i think that's that's a really interesting way to i, I love the way you break that down and you know kind of to, to bring this to what's going on today do you see is you know obviously we're recording this in the midst of you know, you know the, the coronavirus outbreak do you mm -hmm. see the conversation around energy changing at all through this time period i know you know the word I, I saw an article the other day unprecedented was used on google 10 times more than it ever has it's good do you see how do you see the energy conversation changing amidst you know you know all this stuff well, I think, I think it's, this is a time in general where there are a lot of big decisions being made. And I think a lot of them could be really bad, but there's also an opportunity to make them good. And so one thing is how are people going to, what decisions are people going to make about energy? And on the one hand, you have the green movement. What are they saying? They're saying, oh, this just proves that we need to get off fossil fuels sooner because coronavirus is a catastrophe. And if only we had listened to the scientists, we could have totally avoided that. And then now climate change is a catastrophe. And now we have to listen to the scientists and get rid of fossil fuels and totally avoid that. So I can talk about that in a minute why I think that that's wrong. But you have that kind of narrative. You also have some people more in the minority, but they're saying, well, look, we're only able to deal with this 
because fossil fuels give us this low cost machine power that's that's you know how are we actually fighting this the hospitals are powered by electricity mm -hmm. the transportation uses energy the you know the materials are all are huge percentages of them are petroleum products and you have that kind of thing so you have all these these different um kinds of narratives and it's going to be interesting to see which ones play out what i would say about the the catastrophe thing is i think that what we're seeing i mean i think that the that covid i mean is a much more serious threat than rising co2 levels but what, what i think people are starting to see even about that threat is there was this incredible exaggeration and catastrophizing of it so it's not that there's no issue but you know for example we i mean leaders of our country acted on the idea that if we didn't lock everyone in their homes two and a half million people uh would die right and and i've said since the beginning this is wrong and this parallels a lot of the bogus modeling and predictions that have gone on with environmental issues and this is now i think going to be completely borne out that there's just no chance whatsoever that this would have been true it was based on catastrophism which is catastrophism doesn't mean you make up a problem but it means you dramatically uh, blow it out of proportion and then you ignore other relevant considerations. So you see with COVID, what happened is they come up with the most catastrophic possible scenario for leaving people free. And then they ignore all the benefits to people's lives of being free. So it's just from the beginning, I said, look, you're gonna wreck tens or hundreds of millions of lives and you haven't even considered that. You haven't even considered that just because there's so much panic about, oh, well, what happens if we don't uh, do this? So I think there's actually a really good opportunity to say, what we really need to be on the lookout is for people who claim catastrophe and then demand radical reductions of our freedom. And that's what I think the real parallel is, this catastrophizing of threats and then restricting people's freedom. And that's the real catastrophe in my mind, to restrict people's freedom is to restrict their ability to be productive and to restrict their ability to enjoy their lives. And I think right now we've got tens of millions of people who've really been victimized and who will be very open to a message that we don't actually need the government to take over a new thing. We actually need the government to start liberating us. Right. Uh, I'll tell you, I, Alex, this is such a refreshing conversation. I've had other conversations that where uh, we interview folks and they are uh, on the green side of things, or I hate to use the word green. It's all about people. It's about elevating mm -hmm. people out of poverty and taking a look at India. Um, uh, Michael and I were just talking, they've got uh, six uh, LNG ports, very large mm -hmm. import uh, terminals they put in. They've, they've got four more uh, on, on the works for LNG coming into India. Well, this past weekend, they just opened up a gigantic uh, area for coal mining because coal is the cheapest form of energy that they can get in some of those areas for India. And even though it's energy, uh, they are going to be burning it and it's not good yeah, in good, the house. Good, good, yeah, good for them though. Yeah, absolutely. And I applaud the absolute wonderful Indian leaders trying to elevate their people out of poverty using the most economical affordable way that they can through the market so i applaud them and i mean that. i would i would just add one 
one point that I'm going to emphasize more in the second version of, of my book, which is uh, coming out next year. So if people haven't read my book, it's probably still worth getting the first one because the new one won't be out until probably February. But one thing I emphasize more about this issue of energy poverty and the need for energy is it needs to be coupled with political freedom. And including yes. one crucial freedom is the freedom to profit which is something that is not valued nearly enough. But you think about what profit is. Profit is really a measure of value creation. It means that the, you know, the value that you consume in the process of producing the energy, that that's less than the value that you produce. And part of the freedom to profit is you actually have to be able to get paid for the value that you produce. And if you look at a lot of places uh, in India, different places in Africa, it can be very hard for entrepreneurs to make a profit because just different kinds of the, the political infrastructure, you can think of it as, it's very, like, you can just get robbed. And why would somebody make an investment in a place where they don't have a reliable ability to get a return? So I think that just there's, that's an important dynamic that it's definitely anything we do to make energy more expensive is directly harmful to the poorest people in the world. Um, but so it needs to be a combination of the freedom to produce energy, but also freedom more broadly, including the freedom to profit, the freedom to develop. That's another big one that's under attack and the freedom to compete. So to have all different forms of energy or sources of energy uh, being free to compete. And I think if you have those dynamics in place, then you'll see just a rapid rise in income. But for sure, they're going to be using a lot of coal and, and that's good. Boy, um, I'll tell you, you are just so refreshing. Thank you very much. We've, we, we, I'm sorry. I love you, your attitude. I don't want to do a man group therapy hug or anything, but outstanding on your opinions and the message that you're bringing forth. Your book is coming out. The update is coming out in February. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Sometime in February yeah. next year. And, and so I, we can I, follow I just Go noticed ahead, the, the sign, the human, the human flourishing project on your back. I didn't know if there's a, a chance to, what is, is that something you're working oh, on? Sure. I, you mentioned human flourishing a little bit. And I didn't know if that was a specific, you know, project you're working with. Yeah. So human flourishing is, is a central concept of my thinking on energy. I've talked a bunch of times about how I think that's the standard by which we should measure, measure decision-making. That's how we should think about the earth. We want the earth to be a better place for human flourishing and human flourishing project is a broader uh, thing. It's, it's just a podcast right now, but it's, it's where I explore this idea of human flourishing, but I explore it in other domains, including a lot about just personal life. So what does it mean to flourish as an individual? And my own, the thing I probably talk about most is productivity, but how to approach productivity from a human flourishing perspective. And one angle I have on it is I talk a lot about relaxed productivity so how can it be that we're spending so much time in our lives creating value? How do we do that in a way that's enjoyable? So I, I think a lot about that and I share a lot about that, but there are other topics as well. So if people are interested in that, uh, they can just find it on any of the podcast platforms or there's a, a website, humanflourishingproject.com, where you can sign up to get updates. Uh, that's pretty cool. Has your opinion of uh, how the human flourishing project should be handled through the COVID uh, lock-in? Well, I, I've been talking a lot uh, about how to deal with massive disruption. So it's interesting because in my my main work, I've been fighting against lockdowns. And it's it's 
I'm gonna, I've been, people can check out, I have, so I have two podcasts. One is called Power Hour. The other is called Human Flourishing Project. And if people want to see Power Hour, they can search that on any of the podcast platforms, or we have a YouTube page, youtube.com slash improve the planet, which you probably get why I say that, youtube.com slash improve the planet. I've been talking a lot about my views there, but uh, bottom line is I thought this was just a very, I think indefinite universal isolation of all the citizens of a country, regardless of any evidence about whether they actually have a virus. I do not consider that to be an American response or a practical response. I think you can only have selective isolation based on people who are demonstrably infectious or, if absolutely necessary, of the most vulnerable uh, populations. And you're seeing now even 50% or so nursing home deaths, and yet everybody was being forced to be in their homes for something that was just, you know, much more of a selective threat. So on one side, I'm advocating for freedom, but on the other hand, I know I have limited control over what happened. So on my, my human flourishing project, project, I've been talking a lot about just how as individuals do we deal with disruption? Certainly you're talking to oil and gas. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to talk about disruption, there's a lot of that uh, going on. And so I, I've just been sharing some strategies that I use uh, myself to think about, okay, how do, I, how do I take a situation in which the default conditions are in most ways getting worse? And how do I use that how do I, how do I, how do I sort of innovate to make my life better? So just thinking about, and you've seen this just a, a trivial example, but it's like, you've seen some people, for example, take advantage of the, the physical distance to use zoom say to get connected to people that they weren't connecting with. And that's, that's an example of, I would call that triumphing over disruption where you're taking a bad situation, but you're innovating and you're figuring out, okay, how do I like, how do I use my mind? to make my life better, even though forces are conspiring to make it worse. And, and I go through, I, you can feel the look at the podcast, but I, I go through a bunch of different areas of life and talk about that because it, it's so destructive. I mean, there are so many vulnerable people right now, given this disruption. And the worst yes. thing is to feel like my life has gotten worse and I don't have any control over it. So I'm just, I'm interested in anything I can do to help people think about things uh, in a different way. Alex, thank you again for your time. And we will uh, have all of your contact information, all of your podcasts and everything that you have going on in, in our show notes. Uh, okay. Michael. Oh, can I make uh, one more? Sorry, can I oh, make one absolutely. more website? I, I'm yes, sorry, I'm giving too, too many. Um, but the best one, if you're interested, just go to industrialprogress.com and sign up for our mailing list. I put out a new, I have a weekly newsletter that I put out on Wednesdays. And that summarizes everything, including whenever this comes out, this will be in that. And so that's the easiest way if you get overwhelmed by all these links. So it's just uh, industrialprogress.com and sign up for the mailing list. Sorry to interrupt the exit. Oh, we, we want everybody to be able to get in touch with all of your information. And so we'll have all your podcasts and everything. 